0: It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, October 26th, 2016, and you're listening to God and Comics, the show where all that we value most is bagged, boarded, and baptized. On today's show, we'll be joined by the writer Brian J.L. Glass to discuss his amazing work on The Mice Templar and Furious, what it's like to be a comic book writer today, and how his faith influences his work. Plus, we'll have our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm the rector of St. George's Episcopal Church in Schenectady, New York. Very good. And uh, Father Kyle wasn't able to be with us today. Uh, but as I mentioned in, in our intro, we do have a special guest coming through. Uh, should still be a, a, a wonderful uh, episode, even if you're just stuck with these two schlubs as, as hosts. <laughs> um, so without any further ado, let's go right into our recommendation. Father Matt, what are we recommending this week? As many
1: of you may have heard, the infamous track writer and cartoonist Jack Chick uh, passed away just this week. And so oh. I'm going to confirm his suspicions about Episcopal clergymen, and I'm going to recommend Lucifer to you <laughs> um, Okay. And, and, and by, by that, I mean um, the comic book Lucifer, which is um, a spinoff of the Sandman series by Neil Gaiman. Lucifer Morningstar was a character in in the series The Sandman. He is based on the the Christian uh, Satan or devil, the Lucifer from the Bible, but he is his own kind of character. He originally appeared in The Sandman uh, story The uh, Seasons of Mist, and in that story, Lucifer decides that he is bored. With reigning over hell, and he uh, he hands the keys to hell over to uh, to Dream the Sandman, and he says, you know, I'm done with this. I quit. Uh, I'm retiring a- as the devil. You can do what you want with with the keys to hell. In in that storyline, Satan goes off, uh, or Lucifer goes off to L.A. where he opens a, a swank piano bar. And where he, he decides to live out the rest of his days as sort of a lounge pianist and a club owner. The series came out quite a few years later, and it was written by Mike Carey, um, and uh, the main artist on that is Peter Gross. They, are, they recently made a television show that yeah. is supposed to be based on the comic book, but it has absolutely nothing to do with it at all (laughs) i mean basically they took the concept of the of satan or lucifer uh, being in retirement and being a club owner and that's it they turned it into like a police procedural where he's like this charming guy that hangs out with like a a cute cop (laughs) and solves crimes the comic book is not like that at all it's a mind-bendingly Brilliant comic book. I mean, the, uh, the, the author, Mike Carey, I think he has a, He studied at Oxford. He used to be a, a professor. He's very learned. The, the book is very interesting. It's, the, the figure of Lucifer has really more in common with sort of the literary figure of, of Lucifer. So this is kind of the Lucifer of Milton's Paradise Lost especially probably as, as interpreted by Shelley and Blake as kind of this romantic hero or this symbol of autonomy. Lucifer in, in this series, I, I think the main theme is sort of his quest for absolute independence. To be free from the shackles or, uh, of, of predestination. To be out from under the thumb of, of his creator. But he's not exactly a, a, a hero and that's what I think makes the, the comic book so interesting and multidimensional. Wow. This isn't like, Oh, well, we're going to make uh, Satan, a hero and a symbol of, of freedom. No, because in his quest for autonomy, he can really be quite callous and cruel. And just when you think that, that Lucifer might be, you know, not all bad, he reveals to you just how utterly, uh, Wicked he is. He, he even goes as far as to try to create his own universe, a, a parallel universe uh, where where he can, you know, have his own space. Uh, but his his quest for autonomy is is, is ultimately futile because, uh, as he himself says, there's nowhere in creation that he can go to get out of um, out from under. God, his, his creator. It's a horror comic book. <laughs> it can be, it can be pretty, uh, dark. It can pre- be pretty, uh, pretty violent, but it has some really brilliant stories. Oftentimes, a uh, Lucifer is just sort of in the background and it's dealing with all sorts of other supporting characters. I'm about three or four volumes into it and it's, it's really just well done. Very well written. It's got lots of drizzt for the mill as far as theological and, and philosophical reflection. Although I, I think Mike Carey would be uh, quick to point out, I don't think he's trying to make uh, uh, he's trying to preach a religious message here. I think he's trying to tell a very human story, and the, this figure of Lucifer in the comic book represents something about about human nature. Or we'll we'll
0: have to keep our eyes out for that and give the devil his due. (laughs) Well, we are joined now by our special guest, Brian J.L. Glass. Brian is a Harvey Award-winning writer whose work has been published by Marvel, DC, Image, and Dark Horse. The fifth and final volume of his highly acclaimed series, The Mice Templar, comes out November 9th. And is available for pre-order now. So go right ahead and do that, folks. Walk, do not run, to your computer to do that. Brian, welcome to God and Comics.
2: It's fantastic to be here. Thank you for reaching out and inviting me. And irony of ironies, we're like almost neighbors. Yes. So let me
0: let me tell you a, a brief history of Father Jonathan with the Mice Templar. Um, I picked up the first volume from the library about a year maybe a year and a half ago something like that honestly i i didn't know what it was. i thought i was getting mouse guard yeah. to tell you the truth <laughs> a common a, f- a frequent and common mistake um, but uh so, frequent and common well it was a good mistake because i read it and it blew my mind and i was like this is the this is the most awesome thing that i've read in such a long time i started to try to make everybody read it i made my wife read it or start to read it thank you um and uh, and then you know we had had uh, Father, our friend, Father Nico Bacris, who has the um, the blog. Uh, I always mess up this.
1: I think it's Christ Coffee and Comics.
0: Christ Coffee and Comics. Thank you. We had You're him right. on the show, and I was looking back through there and went, "Oh, oh, okay, this is the guy that he had interviewed." I hadn't actually read the interviews. I just mm. saw that he had interviewed somebody, and I started to read those interviews. Now I'm, you know, a couple. Maybe two or three volumes into Mice Templar at that point. And then I went, oh, wait, well, this guy lives in the Philadelphia area. Oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and then I uh, connected with you on Facebook mm-hmm. and discovered that by the Philadelphia area, you actually live five minutes from my house. Yes. So. <laughs> these weird confluences of things but we're going to link to um father nico's interviews uh, on the show page thank you Um, so people should go and check that out we'll try not to reinvent the wheel too much with that because that was a a great pretty in-depth series of interviews well why don't we start and and i want to talk about a lot of different things here today but why don't we actually start with mice templar so this is uh, a book that was Co-created by you, Michael Oming, and and later uh, Victor Santos.
2: The idea of, of doing a book, Mice with Swords, right, that right. was a play on the Knights Templar. That was all mm. Mike Oming. Yeah. But by the time he brought me aboard, I was brought aboard with the instruction of build him a world. Because he began to recognize the fact that... Uh, you can 't just have fantasy characters who go into the cave and stumble upon the magic sword mm-hmm. there 's a history behind that magic sword and why it would be in the cave and he just he was struck by the fact that a fantasy story to really like stand the test of time it needed to resonate with the audience. Everything needs to feel like it 's real and had a purpose. And at that, just at that point in his uh, storytelling development, he didn't feel that he was up to the task of, of doing that, so he just simply gave me a lot of notes about his mythological ideas for this universe. He told me the setting, it's a world where the Templar have fallen, and he asked, build me a world. And right after I read all his material, I asked, so, how did the Templar fall? And he went... I don't know, it's just a setting. And I said, well, if we're going to ultimately restore them, we need to know why they fell, or else the, the finale has no purpose. It was answering that one simple question how did the Templar fall that set in motion my creation of the mythology and the progression of the plot and developing the characters. And it eventually became so multi layered, I even started having trouble keeping track of it all. But yeah. now it's done.
0: I, as I'm sure you sometimes have to do if you're going to give the, like, Reader's Digest version to somebody who goes, well, I have no idea, I have no frame of reference for what's this Mice Templar book, what, what's it about, what is it, what, what would you say?
2: Well, this is the spiel that I'll give it at uh, comic book conventions when total strangers come up to me at my table and they say, what is this, it's fascinating, or it it appears, that's where the, the co-creator artwork just really draws people in. Comics are first and foremost a visual medium, which is why all uh, really good teams will acknowledge to each other that we're, we're co-creators in this. I may have developed the, the world, but Mike and then later Victor, they bring the visual oohs and ahs that are what you know, pack the people into the seats to, at the beginning. So when people see the artwork and they come up and ask, what is this uh, really cool-looking thing? I'll say, well, the Mice Templar is an anthropomorphic, mice with swords fantasy world in the tradition of Lord of the Rings, or I say Game of Thrones on a really small scale. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then I say the, the Templar of the title were an order of mice in which the their legend said that the creator of the world called them to maintain the balance of the natural world Uh, they're not just about protecting other mice but they they maintain the balances between predator and prey keeping scavengers from uh, multiplying and running amok and just generally preserve the order and about a generation ago a building ideological dispute over what was their true purpose should they just stand by ancient traditions or evolve into something that is far more impactful upon their world, divided the order, they fought a civil war, and they destroyed themselves. And so the moment the guardians of order are gone chaos has descended on the natural world bad guys always exploit power vacuums a an insane mouse has engineered his ascendancy to the throne and now in a very hitler-esque type fashion he is systematically annihilating what appears to be his very own culture Uh, he is just wiping mice from from the face of the world and why he is doing this? What is the mechanism behind his madness? Is one of the mysteries of the series. And so, within all this doom and gloom, this young mouse grows up enamored of the stories and legends he's heard of the mice of the Templar. They don't actually call themselves the Mice Templar. Uh, and then, very Joan of Arc like, he begins to receive these visions and dreams that the creator of the world has called him to restore something that was lost. Now, does that mean restore the balance? Does that mean restore the Templar? Uh, He doesn't know, and before he can do anything about it, his village in classic Joseph Campbell, Hero's Journey fashion, his village is the next one slated for destruction, and he's left at the end of uh, the very first two chapters uh, alone in the world, his mother and sister have been taken captive to be sacrifices at the capital. His, he believes his best friend has been killed, his village destroyed, and he is left with the fate of the world hanging on his shoulders. And what does he do next? And what follows is a, a grand adventure, a coming-of-age story. As our hero uh, p- proceeds to discover what is his destiny, what part does he play in all this, uh, grows up to realize that the Templar really were creeps. And they, there's a reason <laughs> everyone hates them. And maybe restoring them is not such a good idea. And then he runs into survivors of the Civil War that are still engaging in the civil war, even while their culture is being annihilated. So if all of a sudden he's the, the, the classic chosen one, well, he better be a chosen one for our side of the civil war. Because if he's a chosen one for the opposition, he's our enemy. And so he then becomes a pawn, and the king is out to get him, and then there's a whole realm of supernatural going on, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger for being on such a small scale
0: let's talk about that civil war for a second because this is actually one of the things that i I really wanted to ask you about you have these two sides that uh, the templar had divided into uh, and it's based on their reaction and response to the stories of an ancient hero kulen Um, so he was this great hero many centuries ago who would you know organize the templar to begin with and done all of these other things and Um, Some of the miraculous, you know, the Templar in Carrick's day, Carrick being the main hero here Mm -hmm. um, in his day, the Templar have divided and almost seemingly disappeared. And the line of the division is between those who take what we might think of as a more literalist view uh, that these things uh, absolutely happen the way that they happen and also a little bit more of an authoritarian Mm -hmm. view, you might say. And then those who take a different view and see this more as you know these are these are kind of stories that inspire us that connect us that do important things, mm-hmm. um, but are not as literalist um, about it. And uh, although it, there is some irony to the fact that the the, the anti-authoritarian group produces the uh, the king who becomes the authoritarian, um, mm-hmm. but uh, I see in that a strong parallel with uh, the fights in the modern Christian church between literalism and revision what we might call revisionism, although I guess that's more of a pejorative title, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know that anybody actually calls themselves a revisionist. But my, my question is, was, was that an intentional parallel you were drawing? And if so, uh, what were you
2: trying to communicate with with that, drawing that parallel? The answer to the first question is, yes, it was intentional. The follow-up would be what I was trying to illustrate was truth as I saw it. I spent a lot of my life in various denominations, and you look at the, uh, the denominational squabbles, uh, not, not just Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, but then within, uh, within Protestantism, endless divisions, and everyone believes that they are the exclusive truth. And you know, from my perspective, Christ is the exclusive truth. Uh, and then everyone argues over, well, what does Christ mean, and who is Christ? And then, regardless, we will find a way, humanity will find a way to divide against people. And Christ taught the ultimate coming together. So I've observed this phenomenon uh, pretty much my entire life. And then as I became, as I grew into adulthood and began to watch the political process in the United States, I saw the same concept play out in american politics a blue state red state really and are people divided over politics i hadn't <clears> i hadn't noticed it, it, <laughs> i think there's an election coming up have or it, it may have just been according have been to any sayingers. ads here
0: in the state of pennsylvania
2: i haven't <laughs> seen any then again i watch everything on tape delay ah, well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. so yeah it was my my exploration uh of of the phenomena because i believe that our gravitating towards division is a sad human truth. It's regrettable, but it is still a human truth. And you end up finding that on all sides, there are elements of truth. But you get into the nitty gritty over what we ultimately come down and, and divide over. And mm-hmm. it's, it's sad. And I tried in my Templar to take a very realistic perspective that. I mean there's
1: there's a sense in which this is a very universal story and I mean you you kind of threw around the the Joseph Campbell name a little bit and, and you know and the different kind of you know our types of a heroic story or whatever but there's also some very specific borrowing of names that point us to like Norse mythology like uh, Wotan it's, it's kind of Kind of like Odin, isn't it? And, and, yes. And, and then there's um, Avalon.
0: Um, there's there's sort of names that are borrowed from Norse mythology. And, 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 oh, I thought and, and, that was from uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Or uh, or Arthurian
1: legend. I mean, and then there's there's also some things that that feel very much drawn from biblical kind of stories. How, how intentional was that all, all or, or, or is this just sort of happen organically? I mean, you're sort of pointing in many directions. What was the process like in, in, in developing the world?
2: Okay, well, first and foremost, the, the Joseph Campbell uh, hero's journey or hero with a thousand faces. When Mike Oming brought me on board, he was a huge Joseph Campbell devotee. And the story that he had initially scrabbled together in his notes was kind of uh, beat for beat the hero's journey. And he's freely admitted this. I'm not telling tales behind his back. And that was actually one of the flaws that he sensed when he brought me aboard to kind of divert him away from such a classic formula And yet, I will bring it into the description, because when you read the opening chapters that set Carrick on his journey, uh, that was what Mike wanted from the beginning. And it very definitely is, intentionally on Mike's part, the launch of that classic tale that has permeated culture. That's Joseph Campbell's whole point. It's like, it's the universal uh, tale that humans have been telling around the fire of the you know The Hero with the Thousand Faces. Different cultures, but it's the same tale told in all its various permutations. So you start with Joseph Campbell, you start with the hero's journey, but then it was my job to take it and twist it against all preconceptions. And I can't tell you, over the course of the five volumes, the actual seven books, people would come up to me at conventions and just say ah, yeah, yeah, I started reading your book and I I know exactly where it's going to go right up to the point where it went completely where they didn't intend it to go. <laughs> and then they would come, they'd see me the next year at the same show, whether it was Seattle or Chicago or New York or Baltimore or Charlotte, North Carolina, at HeroesCon. They would say the same thing. It didn't matter. We'd be up to volume four. And they'd say, you've been throwing me for a loop. Every time I think I know what's going on, eh, but I still know how it's all going to end. And I'm like, oh, okay, please tell me. And uh, in in all the years that the book came out, no one ever guessed at where we were going. And uh, I don't know which of you two gentlemen, if either of you have actually read the ending yet. Uh,
0: I have. Okay.
2: I have have not read the ending yet. Okay, I don't don't want to spoil anything, (laughs) but uh, it's one of those endings that when it comes completely out of left field... And yet, the moment you absorb it, if you go back from to the very beginning, you'll realize this ending, what the book has really been about, has been in clear sight. Uh, it's, it's in the mythology. It's in what all the characters have been talking about. And as the story unfolds, the, the cycles of conflict that you continue to see... And so whether it's uh, on the cosmic scale or whether it's just division between two former Templar guys that used to be friends, the origin of the division is universal, and that's what the book is really about. Uh, regarding the, uh, the other aspects that filter into both the telling of the tale and in the mythology, but Mike Oming wanted it to be very Celtic. And then he turned around one day and he said, no, 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 I want to make everything very Norse. And I'm like, let's let's not pigeonhole ourselves. And so I kind of made the book a melding pot. And so... Uh, you're not going to read it and say, oh, this is totally based on Norse mythology any more than it's an actual mice version of the Knights Templar. People frequently ask me that, and I tell them all the time. Uh, it's, it's just a clever title because Cal Templar just didn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> uh, so well, That would be amazing, <laughs> and that really
0: should be your follow-up word, is the Cal Templar. I'm looking forward to
2: it. Ah, uh, doom and gloom and cowbell. Needs more cowbell. Needs more cowbell. <laughs> can,
0: can, yeah. can I just say, well, first of all, let me say, having, having read the ending and being very nervous about it, because this is what happens when you invest yourself in a story, is you think, oh, God, this better not let me down when it gets to the <laughs> end, right? I found it to be a very satisfying ending. But I do want to ask, because you're talking about the different influences, and... There is a way in which, I mean, I think a Christian is going to read these books differently than a non-Christian would or, or differently than somebody who hasn't been exposed to a lot of Christian theology would. And so there's a lot of, I think, touch points there. But it's not a straight, it's not like this is just like mapping on to the Jesus story or something. This is Correct. coming from a lot of different sources. But it is the hero's story, mm-hmm. or a hero's story, I should say. We talk a lot on this show about heroes and Christ figures, as you can imagine. When you're talking about comic books and, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about superheroes Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of time talking about those connection points uh, back. And so here's my question. Is Carrick a Christ figure?
2: Uh, I would say there are elements. Uh, It was very, very important to both me and Mike, and I guess more so on me because I was the the builder of the mythology and I was the teller of the tale in text form. Uh, I was the the mad architect designing where all the twists and turns were going to go. Uh, It was very important to us that I avoid uh, the C.S. Lewis-Narnia approach. I did not want to tell cleverly or not-so-cleverly disguised Christian allegories There was no desire on my part to tell a tale that when it was over, Christians could use this to proselytize. Because I feel there, even though I believe the Christ story is the true story, in my years as a Christian, I've been exposed to so much what I consider to be uh, Christian propaganda. And the moment your story is propagandized, you will subvert truth in order to get your agenda across. And I wanted to ultimately tell a tale that was not agenda-driven, but truth-driven. And that truth is not a religious truth, not a political ideological truth, not a philosophical truth. It was the truth of the human condition told through animals and (laughs) able to say things that you can only get away with through the magic of anthropomorphics. And so part of that human condition truth is human beings are a mess. (laughs) Uh, And the story is filled with uh, the most noble of heroes making horrible mistakes and the consequences of uh, the most noble of intention gone awry and look at everyone that suffers the consequence. And then on the flip side, the Evil that is done that ends up having unexpected positive consequences, and to me, that is what we all experience every day that we live on Earth. Is this incredible uh, mixture of the good and the bad, and somehow between it all, we stumble through lives and try to live a good life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted uh, my Templar to convey more of. And so I felt with that being my perspective, I could be honest about the politics and the intrigues. I could be honest about characters expressing their faith. I could, I could be honest about distortions. And I could be honest about characters having agendas and doing bad for the most noble of reasons. And ultimately, at the end of all of Templar, I believe we came to an answer in the finale that, as you said, was satisfying.
0: How much of your personal sort of understanding of
2: God, sense of a relationship with God, goes into or went into Wotan? In the course of the telling of my from I said Mike brought me aboard in 2003, and issue one came out in uh, August of 07. But in 2011... While we're still right in the middle of Mice Templar, my wife and I we converted from Protestantism from a life pair lifetimes of Protestantism to uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. Which, uh, for those who don't know Orthodoxy, it's Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Romanian Orthodox. If it's Orthodox, they all believe the same thing. They are not. They're they're ethnic. Divides. They are not doctrinal uh, divides. So, uh, and for those wondering, what's the difference between Catholic and Methodist and uh, Baptist? And no, these are not um, uh, ideological divides. They're just regional and ethnic divides. Uh, doctrinally, if it's Orthodox, they all believe the same thing. How it's practiced is is where the different most of the differences can enter, and. So right smack in the middle of telling mice Templar, my wife and I experience this uh, dramatic revision of our own uh our own faith uh, our own uh, doctrinal beliefs, and yet Wotan did not change to match the new perspective, and so I view it as uh, there 's uh, a joke amongst many former Protestants who convert to orthodoxy that we were Orthodox all along and we just didn't know it that we were Orthodox even when we didn't have a term for it it's the it's the source of everything that ever bothered us when we were Protestant Catholic Anglican etc oh I'm in the office here I gotta be careful <laughs> <laughs> So, um... Someday
0: you'll find the one true Anglican faith.
2: Oh, yes, yes. I'm just... And I'm on my way right here. <laughs> oh. uh, when we were going to have Wotan appear in, in the comic, he... Uh, the owl is not god, per se. The owl is not Wotan, but it is an embodiment. It is It's an expression of Wotan, the god. And... The, the owl to the mice is, is something to be afraid of because they can, uh, the, the owl will take you to meet your maker, uh, quite literally. Uh, but at the same time, it's that level of fear that is also, it's not a fear to be fought. It's fear that is a level of profound respect. It is an acknowledgement that this is a being uh, that holds my fate in its hand. For for good or ill, it is beyond me. And so, when I decided to bring that embodiment of Wotan, of God, into the story, I wanted to preserve that sense of awe, of mystery. And the Orthodox are all about loving the mystery. And so, very early on, I wanted like I I didn't want to be a Uh, a, a Protestant, again, telling allegorical tales. I didn't want this to be allegory. I wanted to treat it creatively with respect. And I thought, I don't want to explain Wotan. I don't want to explain this owl. It is something that enters the world of the mice at different times, and yet it transcends them. And so preserving that mystery was very important And then we discovered orthodoxy, and wow, they're completely cool with uh, the sanctity of mystery.
0: Let's talk about Furious a little bit. So Furious is, is, it's a superhero story, although it's not a world filled with superheroes. But the story of this one particular young woman who uh, finds herself with superpowers, and she had been a child celebrity... She's been through a lot of the self-destruction in public that a lot of young celebrities go through in our culture and come out the other end of it with this experience that gives her superpowers. And so now in disguise, so people don't know that this is who she is, she tries to come back and do good in the world by being a superhero, but finds that it's difficult Um, it's difficult to get the media to connect with you the way you want. It's difficult to get out from under your own past and your own emotions and so on and so forth. And, uh, and so that, that becomes the content of, of a lot of the work. You have called this your most personal work. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you'd be willing to say a word about why you find this so personal.
2: I guess on the surface, out of everything that has been published, it is the oldest story. Her tale, in a very earlier form, has existed as far back as uh, 1987, 1988. It was originally uh, a story that I was inspired to do that I wanted to apply to an existing superhero universe character. Uh, I wanted to uh, basically put the last character you would expect to have a dark side through hell, and kind of through that hell boil them down to the essence of who they really are, and kind of like deconstruct in order to reconstruct uh, who the character is. And within a few years, I realized there was no way that any of the major publishers were going to allow me to do that. So I entered the 1990s trying to figure out how to reconstruct her to be an original heroine. But for the story that I wanted to do, it was very important that she be part of an existing superhero universe. And I kept coming up with, like, these elaborate tales where I'm building the character at the same time I'm deconstructing the character. And I was ending up, every permutation of the tale was some Watchmen-level uh, Uh, and, and I was no way, uh, of Alan Moore, uh, Alan Moore caliber. And, uh, yeah. And so it's like, you got a beard, you got long hair. Ah, yeah. It's it's just all surface, (laughs) (laughs) surface accoutrements. (laughs) Uh, so it just, I, I would revisit the character every couple of years to how can I do it? How can I remove her from, from her source? and still tell the story. And the thing that kept tripping me up again and again and again was there needs to be an established superhero universe for you to understand her fall. And there was no way to intro a universe while at the same time isolating this one character to tell her saga and her downfall in order to resurrect her again. And uh, sadly, it, it took the, uh, the recent passing of Whitney Houston that ended up being the catalyst that took this old character uh, and gave me the, the inspiration to turn her into the character Furious," that now people have read in the, the Dark Horse Volume One series, "Furious Fallen, Fallen Star." Uh, but it was also uh, in the within a day or two of, of Whitney's passing. Patton Oswalt uh, online called out all of the people who were bemoaning what a tragedy, what an unexpected tragedy it was. And I, I, I guess I should memorize what the tweet specifically was, but I've never done that. He generally said, like, you're all acting like this is a surprise. She's been dying before our eyes in slow motion for like the past 30 years. And that really... Uh, struck a chord with me and that that ended up creating bridging the gap from a world of superheroes to a world of superstars and then reinsert the superhero and so i realized i don't need a universe of superheroes in order to make one of them fall and be and struggle to be reborn i have a world of superstardom which everyone recognizes every day that they log on to their social media, and nine times out of ten, if it's not a politician or a sports star, it's a media star that is the number one trend, and it's usually either their new album release or their latest fiasco and so it's a there's a universalism like right? we all get it immediately, we understand. Stars and their failings and their flaws and their popularity. And so I thought, I will take a character and her backstory, instead of being a superhero, she was a superstar who implodes. And now we're telling the story of that struggle to how do you reemerge in a different persona in order to redeem what you've done, and yet that old persona haunts to the point where Furious's big dilemma becomes the incarnation of Persona that she hopes will redeem her actually becomes more infamous than the fallen starlet she's trying to escape from. And so in that moment, the moment the media does not accept her, uh, her self-titled moniker, The Beacon, and instead they they label her with You're furious. And she just keeps saying, my name is The Beacon, The Beacon, the I want to be a shining light, I want to inspire. No, you're the woman that kicks ass and draws blood on television. You're furious, and that's the name that sticks. And now she's got this double dilemma of trying to overcome and redeem the train wreck of a past while avoiding all of the brand new train wrecks because she is tremendous power with no training to restrain all of those those inner demons that can come out in anger and frustration and rage, and uh, she's furious and Volume one chronicles how she initially deals with that public opinion battle and fights to reclaim her name so so here's here's
0: my question about that, especially because you're using the the language of Redeeming, which mm-hmm. is interesting, and we just spent a lot of time with Mice Templar talking about how your faith affects mm-hmm. that creation. There are a lot of ways into that with the sort of mythology of it. Furious is much more sort of gritty, I would say. And yes, and um, Wotan doesn't show up. Let's no, just put it no, that way. no, it doesn't. So, <laughs> yeah. so how, how, if at all, does your faith affect that creation?
2: Deep down, I believe Furious is a redemption story, but I tell people at conventions, it is a redemption is really, really hard type mm. story. Uh, it's, it's almost
0: like a Flannery O'Connor kind of.
2: Yeah, it's, she. You know? she's... Redemption
0: uh, is horrific sometimes, you uh-huh.
2: know? <laughs> Yeah, she, in in many ways, while the book is not religious in any way, shape, or form, and neither do I want it to be... I feel that if I introduced religion into Furious, it would just, it would end up in today's world. It would have to be a denomination. And then if I, if I paint it nice, if, if, if if I treated it, uh nice and respectfully oh well now i'm everyone knows the writer of this is a christian and here's where he's <laughs> propagandizing us and then if i if oh, if i make a, there there's a corrupt priest and oh now i'm slamming slamming the church and so i do not intend to have uh religious faith or religious institutions or entities enter into the tale of furious but deep down, it is that redemption story. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, uh, my heroine, Cadence Lark, who is furious. Cadence Lark is working out her salvation in fear and trembling mm-hmm. every day.
1: So you, you talked about this character's inner demon and, and, and how... how... This is a very personal work. Is this in some ways you wrestling through your own inner demons, through this character, through the telling of this story? I mean, how much of your personal struggle to work out your salvation, as you say, plays into the story
2: of the character? Uh, I would say very strongly, and and I'm not afraid to say that. I I didn't grow up as a child star. I didn't grapple with drugs and alcohol. (laughs) Uh, I wasn't abused, nor was I an abuser. But, I mean, just uh, family dynamics, school dynamics, career dynamics. I've, I've wrestled with a lot of anger. I wrestle with depression on a pretty regular basis. So, yeah, as a creator, I funnel all of those things that i experience and that fuel me drive me hinder me thwart me any good creator is going to take all of that personal experience and funnel it into their work and i believe that's where a good creator achieves the honesty in the tales that they tell what are you reading or watching or being inspired by these days oh not reading enough um Oh, what am I'm currently reading this book called Loras, which kind of comes from a Russian Orthodox tradition. It's a a fictional tale about a a character's journey in the 1800s that's really fascinating. I highly recommend it. L-A-U-R-U-S on television. Hmm. What's what's grabbing me? I can literally say last night I watched the season premiere of season seven Walking Dead and it tore my heart out. Oh
1: that my was... gosh! I don't even want to talk about that. This trigger warning.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was <laughs> uh, it was one of the most difficult hours of television that oh I ever my God. endured. I don't know if I.
1: I don't know if I could handle
2: the rest of this the most of all. Yeah, but but to go on, we, we'd be running a whole other hour, so I'll, I'll cut <laughs> that short. Uh, I'm I'm following all the uh, uh, all the CW superhero series. Oh yeah, uh, I think that that universe is showing that you really can do superheroes on television and build a universe that is acceptable to both non comic reading mainstream public while at the same time really honoring all the traditions of those of us that have grown up reading the Silver Age and the Bronze Age and even the, the whatever the contemporary age of superhero comics are. Cardboard, I think. Yeah. <laughs> the Cardboard Age. Yeah. <laughs> the the bagden boarded Age. That's right, yeah.
0: Thank you for uh, having this conversation with us. We appreciate it. Um, and I hope you'll stick around for our, our uh, this or that segment. That we're oh, that would be awesome. Um, if, if you all out there in listener land have uh, some thoughts about Mice Templar, Furious, any of the things we brought up in conversation today, I hope that you'll share them with us uh, through social media. You can find us on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash God and Comics. Or you can find us on Twitter, at God and Comics. And we can continue the conversation there. And I I hope that we will. But until then, let's move on to our final segment, this and every episode. And that is This or That. This
2: or That, 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 That. This or That, This or That. Come on, everybody, let's This or That. Huh?
0: Okay, This or That. So I I explained this to you uh, earlier. This is, you know... Coker Pepsi doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't have to require too much thought. You can justify it any way you want. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with Father Matt, uh, and give the first one to you so you can get a, get essentials a sure. here. Father Matt, this one's for you. And I have to say, the three of us who do this show, we 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 do it all slightly different ways. I tend to go pretty absurdist with my this or that.
1: Okay.
0: Um, uh, wouldn't you say, Father Matt? That tends yeah, to be. Yeah, I. am trying. To, I tried to calm it down a little though uh, this time because I knew we were going to have a guest. Um, And so, Father Matt, I'm going to start with you. Canada or a basket full of puppies? I mean,
1: I don't think you could. um, There's many things better than a basket of puppies. So, um, you know, no slight to our neighbors to the north, but I'm going to go with the basket of puppies.
0: That's a good choice. What if it was a basket full of deplorable puppies?
1: (laughs) Well, I, I mean, how deplorable can a puppy be, really? I mean, you know, even when
0: they're deplorable, they're pretty adorable. Aplorable, deplorable and adorable.
1: Deplorable and adorable.
0: Okay. Brian, this next one is for you. Putting on my silly hat. Okay. This one's not so silly, though. Uh-oh. Uh, Norse mythology or Greek mythology?
2: Norse. Hammers. Hammers beat swords. Yeah. Um, you did write Thor one Yes, point, I so. did. Thor First Thunder. Yeah. Check it out. From Marvel. Okay. Yeah, I'm much happier with uh, uh, Norse mythology than, than Greek mythology. Okay.
0: Father Matt, Jimi Hendrix or Jimi Page?
1: Oh, that's a difficult one. Well, I, 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 th- I think Jimi Hendrix probably. If only because Jimi Hendrix also, he's more of a solo act. Jimi Page is, uh, I mean, he's great when when he's Zeppelin or the Yardbirds um, but Jimi Hendrix is more the front man and uh, I don't know I, I, I love Jimi Hendrix uh, albums I think he's a very inventive artist and, and produced some really fantastic music although that's a hard one okay. but I'll go with Jimi Hendrix
0: It is a hard one but I think you made the correct choice
1: <laughs> I do I uh, to see we're on the same page we yeah. don't need to start a
0: civil war on the same page, but not Jimmy Page, as <laughs> as the case may be. Brian, this one's for you. Okay. Batgirl or Supergirl? Oh, Batgirl. Why? Uh, Is it Yvonne Craig? You can admit it it's
2: if it's probably Yvonne Craig. <laughs> uh, Supergirl's had many, many in, incarnations. But uh yeah, it's it's in many ways it's the same reason I would choose Batman over Superman. It's that um the superhero without superpowers, who are relying on their own wits and cunning and training, and when they beat the bad guys, it's them beating the bad guys, not a aided and abetted by a superpower. Okay. Fair enough. Incorrect, but fair enough. Okay. Fair
0: enough. <laughs> um, Father Matt, this one is for you. Saint Maximus the Confessor or He-Man? What...
1: Oh, I'm going to have to go with um, St. Maximus the Confessor, because I think his contribution to theology is just uh, much more substantial than He-Man's.
2: Than what came down from Castle Greyskull.
1: Yes, um, and I've I've always been more of a Skeletor guy um, than He-Man, so yeah, I'm going to have to go with Maximus.
0: I mean, it's hard because, on the one hand, St. Maximus uh, kept us safe from the heresy of monothelitism, but on the other hand, He Man kept Eternius safe from the forces of evil. So. Well, you know.
2: Can I YOU, He Man! <laughs> well, who was that? <laughs> now, I mean, it, it's. What would top it is if Maximus the Confessor could ride a tiger.
1: Oh, yes. Like, with a that saddle. That is a good that, would, point. that would just be over the top.
0: So That is a good point.
2: Apocryphal origin, but I read somewhere that he did. Mm. Oh, okay. There you go.
0: <laughs> William Shakespeare or Brian Michael Bendis? Oh! Oh! <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, oh. Keep in mind...
2: Only one of these people you may actually have to see again. <laughs> I, I got to go with my man Bendis. Uh, he, it, it, there, there's a rumor that uh, his works actually got funneled back through time and were the mm. source inspiration for a lot of the Bards', the bard's work. Interesting. But uh, Brian, Brian Michael Bendis wrote the foreword to the climactic Mice Templar Volume 5. So uh, yeah, he's he's my main man. He's my bud, and I gotta stand by him. <laughs> yeah, we we
0: give we give Bendis a lot of love on this show. Um, although, in all fairness to uh, to Bill Shakespeare, he you know he he did some good stuff. That guy. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Not a lightweight.
0: Not a lightweight. Yeah. Not a deplorable in any way. Okay, Father Matt, this one is for you. Vatican II. Or break into electric boogaloo. Uh,
1: wait, what, what? What were the
0: <laughs> Vatican II or break into electric boogaloo? Well, um, I'm gonna have to go with Vatican Two because I don't have any idea what the heck that is. You don't know about break into electric boogaloo? Break into electric boogaloo. That is one of the two greatest names uh, sequel films in in history. It's right up there with City Slickers 2, The Search for Curly's Gold. Oh. <laughs> and um. uh, Ice Tea had a small part in um Breaking Two, and you know my great love for ice tea, so.
1: Yeah. Well, I I I, well, I thought Bride of Breaking was much better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have not seen that one, Father. <laughs> Haven't yeah. seen that one. Looking forward to it. Oh, hey. Hello. That's okay. Helen. Hi, Helen. Bye, Helen. Father Matt's daughter, Helen.
1: She just busted in. Yeah. Okay. And I was trying to answer that
0: very answer difficult that, question. That very difficult question, yes. Um, Brian, uh, peanut,
2: yes. peanut butter or the peanuts cartoon? Oh, I grew up with both. Uh, both satisfied. I guess there's a difference between one is a occasionally revisited fond memory of my childhood while the other sustains me with jelly to this day. Mm. I've got to go with peanut butter. Sorry, Mr. Schultz. Mm. (laughs) Father Matt, this one is for you.
0: Now, with this particular one, the question is, which one, if you had the power, Father Matt, which one would you bring back from the dead? Legendary character actor Abe Vigoda, or a '57 Chevy? Well, because I hate the environment, um, I'm <laughs> going to say the '57 Chevy.
1: Well, because uh, there's just there's too much fresh air, and um, we need those big gas guzzlers to be, you know, pumping. Uh, exhaust into our atmosphere. So, um, I, I I would like to
2: resurrect it with the seven Chevy, and um, yeah. So I'm I'm gonna go with that. Mm, I could weigh in here. Yeah, I, I'd be very reluctant to drag Abe Vigoda from his heavenly reward back into the hell of our <laughs> earth just for our entertainment. Mm. Yeah, it, it it
0: would it would be um,
1: rather inconsiderate.
0: Uh, Brian, last one for you, a little bit less silly, although uh, not not something that I think has been compared before. Okay. Uh,
2: on the Waterfront or The Breakfast Club? On the Waterfront. I'm a, I'm a Brando guy. Uh, I was the target audience for Breakfast Club in the era mm-hmm. that it came out, because I'm, I'm up there. Um, it... I enjoyed it. I thought it was insightful. It was a a snapshot of my era. But oh, Brando could have been a contender. Yeah, that's an awful Brando impression.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think the advantage goes to the movie that has the crusading priest in it every time. Carl mm-hmm. you know, Malden. Yeah. So very good. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for joining us on the program today. It was my pleasure. And uh, that's going to do it for our show. You can re-listen to the show if you like, and you can see links to a bunch of the rad stuff that we talked about today by going to godandcomics.com and, and checking out the show page there. There's a lot of great stuff there, and I hope you will. There's there's Helen again, helping us to close out the program. Um, you. Uh, You can also subscribe to the show via iTunes, and while you're over there on iTunes, we would love it if you would give the program a rating and a review. It helps other people to find it. Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right this moment, is by Father Paul Wheatley, who spends much of his time under the great dimmed eye of Wotan, considering his various options for the future. Until next My time, is, that's Helen. I'm Father Jonathan Helen. Michigan.
1: <laughs> Say Helen. bye, Helen. Bye.
0: Okay, bye, Helen. And who are you, sir?
1: I'm Father Matt
0: Strumberg. Okay, and we'll see you next time.